This is the Productize Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thanks for tuning in. Today, you're going to hear my conversation with Michael Erickson. It was uh, really great for me to meet Michael for the first time. We had a really good conversation. Michael runs searchscientists.com. That's a productized service or an agency, if you will, that runs marketing services, a lot of pay-per-click management and AdWords, Amazon ads. But what was really interesting was this year in 2017, him making the transition from the service into a SaaS software. I think I know a thing or two about that. I could certainly relate. So he's been building software called AdBadger, which is an ad management platform for the Amazon ads system. So that's really interesting. We really compared notes on how we manage our agencies and putting people in place and restructuring our processes and teams. And I thought that was really interesting. And then, of course, making that transition into building a software product. And we kind of compared notes on working with developers to working remotely versus in-house. And the really interesting way that he met his developer at a dog park of all places. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Erickson. Enjoy. Okay, I'm here with Michael Erickson. How's it going? Hey, Brian, it's going quite well. It's a sunny day here in Austin, Texas. As usual. <laughs> yeah, and I guess you're steering clear of the storm there. We happen to be recording this near the time of the big storm down there in Houston. Yeah, what a tragedy in Houston. Um, I can't imagine. It Mon- looks like months of recovery. Yeah, unbelievable. Well, not to start the podcast on, <laughs> on a dreary note there, but... Um, but, you know, I'm just really excited to have you on and meet you and hear your story a bit. You know, as we were talking before the call, this is kind of a pickup off of the Tropical MBA podcast that I heard you on a few weeks ago. And so I think it'll be really interesting to kind of pick up where that left off. We'll certainly link to that in the show notes for those who want to kind of catch up on that conversation. But what I really related to, of course, is that you've been in this transition from a productized service into building a SaaS product, which of course I'm going through the same thing this year. So it'll just be really interesting to kind of compare notes. But you know, before we get back into the story, why don't we start off, like give us a lay of the land, like tell us about your businesses. How does it all break out right now? Absolutely. So we have two main wings of the business. And I say wings of the business, it's really wings of my businesses because they're actually two separate entities. Uh, So separate legal entity. So the first and the largest at the moment is searchscientists.com, where we basically help businesses find more customers using pay traffic, things like AdWords, Facebook ads, and Amazon ads. And we use a lot of tools for fulfilling AdWords and Facebook ads, but I felt like there wasn't something out there that really did what I wanted it to. So I sort of scratched my own itch and started adbadger.com. And adbadger is basically a piece of Amazon software, which helps Amazon sellers better optimize their paid ads on the platform. Very cool. So, okay, on adbadger, the new software that's coming out, can you give us a sense of like, where is it at in terms of the launch process? Like, does it have customers already? Is it out there yet? Or still like, where are you at? Yeah, so it'll depend when this podcast goes live. But as of today, this week, we are currently in our sort of final stages of beta testing. One of the things that was really important to me was, and this is kind of funny, someone asked me, like, when do you go public? And, you know, for some people, it might be when my list hits certain number or when this particular marketing event happens. But for me, it was really a, I want to be sure that the damn thing works. Like, I want to be able to know definitively that if you put an account 
like if you put an Amazon paid traffic campaign into AdBadger, that it will spit out a better campaign. And, and as of right now, we're at an 87.5% success rate, meaning almost 90% of the campaigns that we've had flow through there have been improved, which I'm pretty stoked about. You know, I was aiming for 90% to be able to say nine out of 10 campaigns will be improved with AdBadger. Like that was the bar that I wanted to set for this product. That's really cool that you could actually measure it to that degree. Yeah, I bothered our great lead developer, Trace. I, I bothered him good and plenty. And I said, can we get this fancy dashboard in the back end that actually tells us every single, like I want to see statistics. I, I'm so fascinated by these pieces of marketing software. And you know, Ahrefs does this, Moz does this, we're, like all these cool companies do this where they provide like industry stats. Like how cool would it be to know like, Hey, you know, like benchmarks, benchmarks, exactly. You know, what's your industry? What's the normal click through rate for, you know, your kinds of products? How are you stacking up? Is everyone seeing a conversion dip maybe on Christmas day? You know, so people don't think that their results are out of the ordinary or things like that. Uh, and in addition to be able to, like I said, be able to have that intelligence. Like we know that our product works at a very, very high percentage of the time. And that's, that's probably the most exciting thing for me to have that intelligence in the back end. I love it. So a little bit later here, we're going to get into AdBadger, how you came up with the idea, exactly what it does, and you know the validation and all that kind of stuff. First, let's start on the other side of your business, search scientists, right? So, okay, so you, you mentioned that you do kind of ad services, whether it's uh, PPC, Amazon ads. Give us a sense of like the size of that company, how many people, like if you're able to share revenue or however you talk about that. Absolutely. So the things that I like to give people the idea of what Search Scientist is. Uh, so we have about 50 clients. We manage about a million dollars a month in paid spend on behalf of those 50 clients. And we are a team of 15, which means we have about five campaign managers and we have about five campaign optimizers. And then the rest are sort of like HR and support staff. And I think that's a fairly good overview of what Search Scientist is as of right now. Very cool. And how long have you been at it with search scientists? And like, was it always that or did it start out as just you personally consulting or how did that start? I'm kind of combining a few questions in one here, but. <laughs> oh man, if we can go back in time and look at like what I call the day one of search scientists, it was just me and a computer probably like sitting in a coffee shop somewhere with like one client and that was it. So it started with me essentially freelancing. And if you wanted to rewind even before that, I was freelancing doing any kind of online marketing service, whether it be SEO or you know content design or content marketing or AdWords or anything. I was doing anything that people would be willing to pay for. And I really did connect with... Were you coming out of a full-time job or something? Uh, so I, have a, I sort of engineered the start of my entrepreneurial career. So I was a high school biology teacher in New Jersey. Hence the name. Hence the name, Search Scientist. There you go. There's science, right? Oh, all right. It's all coming together for me. All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was a high school biology teacher in New Jersey. And I actually really did enjoy the profession. I think it's such a great profession. You know, the good days didn't even feel like work. However, as you can imagine, there's a load of bureaucracy that comes along with being a teacher and you know, certain things that bogged me down that made me very jaded very young. You know, I think that happens a lot with teachers where they show up, they're very idealistic, and then they're greeted with, uh, then they're greeted, I'll give you a quick anecdote, actually. I was having a evaluation and the class went fairly good, 
But the feedback, would you believe this? The feedback was, uh, hey, you're using Roman numerals in your lesson plans. You need to use numerals instead. Can you get this fixed by the next? And, and at the time, you know, I was fresh out of college. I was a good little soldier. I said, sure, yes. And it just ate me up like too, too fast. So, I mean, not to sidetrack on a whole uh, rabbit hole here, but it, that is just amazing to me because, you know, teachers in education, like if there's anywhere where we should be putting in the most resources, the best people and empowering them, even entrepreneurial people who are looking to innovate in that kind of space. I mean, it's education and teaching and to see, you know, young, talented, smart people get sucked into the system and ditch it. It's like, man, that's, that's no fun, but and it kind of led to some of the motivation of saying, hey, you know, could I be a better leader than maybe the leaders in this workplace? And I think a lot of people go through this process of saying, hey, I think I can run an organization better than this is being run. Uh, and they kind of look at the things that they enjoy. And I was always sort of good with computers and good with the internet. And just I enjoy the competitive edge of sort of it, like online marketing is like this competition that takes place over the computer, which I thought really was really fascinating where, you know, it's you versus the competition. You all have the same resources and the same educational components at your fingertips. Who's going to use those resources more efficiently and effectively to get more conversions for lower costs? Like I, I really connected with that. Yeah. So I actually, as a transition point, found a job in South Korea, uh, which was a teaching job, but it was sort of part-time. It was only 20 hours a week. And that was the sort of the, hey, I can go do that for 20 hours a week. And on the side, start refining my skills, start sharpening that saw, so to speak. And that was the transition point. So when I referred to myself, like with that first client sitting in that coffee shop, yeah, that was probably in South Korea at like 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Okay, so where did it go from there? Like you're building up the freelance work, doing marketing services, marketing consulting. How does that eventually turn into, I know it, we're bridging a big gap here, but how does that become a team? Like when did you actually start to hire a team and go beyond just yourself? Yeah, right. The, the, the switch from, hey, I want to be self-employed, which is essentially what the decision that I made in you know New Jersey when I was teaching to the transition point of, hey, I'll be a freelancer, to the transition point of, hey, let me build out a team and actually build a boutique agency, which is essentially what I've done. And I think it relates a little bit to my personality, just in the sense of looking for greater challenges, wanting to see what I'm capable of and wanting to sort of level up. So I think a lot of it is personality-based. And I think the other side of it is, like, that excited me. Like in the same way that like online marketing is a competition, like wouldn't it be cool to get bigger and better clients and like see how you can compete at that level? Uh, wouldn't it be cool if you can kind of structure an organization where you can, because it's, it's really satisfying to like have a campaign go well. So wouldn't it be cool to do that instead of just with five clients, but maybe 10 or maybe 15? Like, wouldn't that be like a fun, so, that, so it was this very natural progression of, you know, leveling up, so to speak, like to throw back. I know I mentioned that the Travel Club MBA podcast, but it's like, I do very much love video games in the sense of like, I think that's a lot of my personality too. Like being able to like level up, like what can we do to like level up in business? That's something so attractive. You know, I can totally relate to that. So many parts of your story, because I mean, I was not a biology teacher, but <laughs> uh, I did make that transition from a full-time job into being a freelancer, you know, designer, web designer and everything. But 
the thing that I not so quickly, but eventually came to realize was like, even though I'm freelancing and I have a bunch of clients, that's technically it's self-employment, but now I have like a bunch of bosses instead of one boss. And then I started to relate to, okay, how can I grow this? Like, yeah, I can keep raising my rate. I can maybe squeeze in a few more clients, but there's still going to be a ceiling to that. I need to grow beyond just myself and grow an actual business where I've got people in place, systems in place, and I'm actually working on the business. So it sounds like you started to hit that same kind of transition point. Exactly. And I often, you know, I'll get a message from someone who's a freelancer. You know, they do online marketing services and they say, hey, I'm curious what it's like to have an agency. And I understand like the move, like, sure, it makes sense. You know, if you can have, you know, if you can do five clients yourself, you can do, you know, 25 clients with a team, you can do 50 clients with a team. Uh, but it's really different, a completely different skill set. It's like a completely tool set that people need. And a lot of times when I do have those conversations with people looking to move from freelancer to agency owner, a part of it is like, you know, do you have that almost like the, do you want it? Like, let's actually break it down because it's not just more money. I probably could have easily made more money just as a solo person. And I think there's lots of people that do that. You know, they get into speaking, they move up the value chain and work with bigger and bigger clients. You know, there are people that do that. So I think it's an interesting, really, really interesting dichotomy of freelancer versus making more money. And sometimes actually having an agency isn't the answer that I feel like is, is this something I, I think is important to mention too. So tell me a bit more about your agency and like how you've structured it. What are the roles on your team? Like who does what? And what does a typical client engagement look like? Absolutely. So this is something that fascinated me for a very, very long time of what does it actually look like? Like how do you actually service clients? Because it's very easy when you're just a solo person. What's the team look like? Well, you wear every single hat possible. You do the accounting, you do the customer service, you do the fulfillment, you do the strategy, you do absolutely everything. So then it's this kind of like fun opportunity to, you know, sit down with a pen and paper and actually draw out an organizational chart to be able to say, you know, who does the client interact with? Why do they interact with them? Should they be interacting with anybody else? What does the interaction look like? So mapping all of those things out is a really, really fun exercise. So specifically the way that it works is every client has a few people actually working on their account. One thing that I decided to do fairly early on was not actually have customer service dedicated people. Let me explain what that means. So I didn't want anyone on the team communicating with clients about their accounts who weren't in their accounts, if that makes sense. So I wanted to create the environment where clients could email the same person every time and not have it get potentially bounced to a project manager who didn't understand their question. So it goes directly to the campaign manager. So our campaign manager is our main point of client contact. And this campaign manager knows paid traffic. They have good customer service skills, which is a really nice center of the Venn diagram to get someone that knows paid traffic, but also has good customer service skills. So that's the person that the client interacts with 99% of the time. That campaign manager does a lot of the strategy, does a lot of the planning, make sure things are up to our standards, and they work alongside a campaign optimizer. And essentially what a campaign optimizer will do is fulfill some of that strategy for the campaign manager. So if the campaign manager says, hey, this client is spending $30,000 a month, they get so many clicks a month, 
we should have negative keyword research optimization once every week for an account this size based off the, what their current status is. They'll then go assign that task and negative keyword research to a campaign optimizer. The campaign optimizer knows how to do negative keyword research. And that's the account fulfillment. You know, that's interesting about the separation or well, so in, in my case with audience ops, it's somewhat similar in the sense that we do assign a small group to each individual client account. So of course we're doing different things like we're producing content, you're managing ads, but we do have dedicated project managers as the communication point and we purposely separate them from the writers. So the client does actually meet the writer during the initial kickoff call for some research. But after that, my goal was to not bog down the writer with all this client communication stuff so that we can allow the writers to just write. So there's that, but there's also the piece of like, we need really, really good communicators and the type of personality that can thrive talking to clients every day. And the best writers aren't necessarily the best client communicators. Like, do you run into that with like campaign managers talking to clients? Like some are really great at campaigns, but maybe not great with clients. Yeah. So there's, there's two questions. The first is, I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of paid traffic people and a lot of like deep practitioners are not necessarily great communicators. Um, you're absolutely right. The thing that I kind of, one of my beliefs about paid traffic services is that the communication part is super duper tied to the actual optimization part. And it's almost just as important uh, in the sense of, like with pay traffic, there's always going to be ups and downs. Uh, in fact, there's this meme where it's like an office space character and like the guy's sipping coffee and uh, he's like looking down at the office worker and he says, hey, thanks for the 16 months of positive ROI growth, but we just had a down week, so I'm going to fire you. <laughs> right. And it's like, it's like meme inside online marketing services. And I've always been of the belief that if the person knows, likes, and trusts the actual person working on their account, then they will trust that we'll be able to weather any potential storm that does come through. And I believe that theory is, is proven yes. So I think pay traffic is a special circumstance about pay traffic is like the relationship, being able to talk about the promotions. A lot of our clients are fairly proficient. So they want to be able to say like, hey, what's our bid optimization strategy? Like these are questions that we get from our clients. And really, you do need like a campaign, somebody with that technical knowledge to be able to communicate that stuff. Exactly. So if we were going to get, you know, two hour email response times during business hours, or we were going to get really good informative emails, it would have had to go to that person anyway, because the person would need to be. So I think that's a part of the type of client that we work with too. Like we often work with you know, someone spending $30,000 a month on their paid spend or $50,000 a month on their paid spend, then they're going to be very treated you know, differently than someone who spends, you know, $300 a month. So I think some of it is the, the savviness of our customers and uh, what I think good PPC service looks like. And the other question is that that doesn't actually change the fact that a lot of PPC people are not actually good communicators. Uh, so one of the things that we we're actually in the process of doing it, uh, we've kind of done it in an unstructured way in the past, but we're, we're really getting structured about it now is we actually have scheduled touch points every single month now. So it's almost like we've trained, hey, here's a touch point. Here's how you write a report that has good relationship building, which may not come naturally to people that love spreadsheets. Uh, or here's how you send a 
monthly call form. You know, it's got a, it's got the questions, and we've talked about you know here's what you do during the meeting. We also have another touch point too, which is like a third person involved with each client, which is actually like a floating campaign auditor. This is a position that I'm really excited we introduced maybe a few months ago. And essentially, what this person does is actually rotate campaign to campaign. Uh, they basically have a mission to take a deep dive on one campaign a day, and essentially get a fresh pair of eyes in there. You know, what else are we doing? What's our continued value? Did anything new come out that maybe, you know, it's not necessarily to like audit the account in the sense that we're going to find everything wrong with it. It's more so what else can we do that maybe, you know, cause there's so much that comes out in online marketing to be able to get someone with a fresh pair of eyes whose only job is to brainstorm new initiatives. That's been really, really cool. And it's a really nice way to sort of surprise our clients. Like, Hey, I know you talk to so-and-so all the time. I'm this person, I'm a client success specialist, and I noticed that we can also be doing these things. You know, this new thing just came out, and I just want you to know we're going to be incorporating it over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, again, we do kind of a similar thing. We have somebody on our team who's a team manager, and she does kind of float across the accounts, and she holds what we call like writer sessions, where she'll pull in two of our writers into a three-person meeting, just talk about the articles you guys are working on this week, and bat around ideas, give each other criticism. And like, you know, it really helps to just add a layer of like quality and like insightfulness that you wouldn't otherwise get. But, you know, I like the fact that you brought up that structure and, and how you have these kind of routines. Um, one thing that really jumped out to me when I was listening to you on Tropical MBA, I, I noted it down. I have to ask you about it because it's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently in my productized services, SOPs and processes. We have a ton of them. Like, when you said something like, we used to have 200 plus SOPs, and now we stripped them all away, and it's much more lean now, we kind of still have the 200 SOPs right now. And <laughs> and I'm thinking about like, we have a pretty well-oiled machine at this point, and that works pretty well. But the challenge that I found more recently is we brought in a bunch of new project managers, and they're all settling in pretty well, but they're constantly like, you know, we have so much process that I just constantly have to feel like, am I doing this correctly? Whereas maybe if I gave them a little bit more freedom and leeway to just use your best judgment, you know, it's that balance between like, it's a productized service. It needs to run a certain way with, I need to let people do their thing, you know? It's, you know, one of the transitions from freelancing to building a team, what does everyone say? It's like, oh, you need SOPs. And I think like it gets passed around a lot. Oh, we need SOPs. Great. So I was like, well, that's what we need to do. Like, let's do it. Like, let's go, let's pedal to the gas and here we go. And outcome a couple of years later, 200 plus SOPs. Honestly, I haven't counted it in like six months, but I, I hope it's not like 300 at this point, but it's like, okay, let's build a whole bunch of SOPs. And I think what was missed was, and this is one of my big things in online marketing education too, is that Different situations necessitate different actions. So I think there are plenty of businesses that function incredibly well and they have really strict SOPs where everyone follows them to a T. You know, you look at McDonald's, for example, like that is down to a science. Like if they do it perfectly, it's an art at that point. And I would say, and then I, I, I was sort of sitting there one day, like brainstorming, like, hey, we have all these SOPs, but this person did it differently. Why is that? And, you know, dug in deep and tried to discover it. And it was like, well, listen, we have 200 SOPs. Like, am I supposed to look up an SOP every, a different SOP every five minutes? Because what would happen is they may open up an account 
and they may notice something and they say, oh, wow, this is out of whack. Uh, you know, their click-through rate isn't as high as it should be. I know exactly, I'm going to go dig in deep. I'm going to find what the issue is and then I'm going to take care of that. And I was kind of sitting there thinking like, does a heart surgeon bring in the book of how to do heart surgery when they go into a surgery room? And it's like, I think there's a degree of, yes, we need good training. You need to know how to do these things. You need to be so good that you can do these without an actual SOP. So what we've sort of taken, we've taken these 200 SOPs. And first of all, we're clearing out a lot of the things that are just redundant, like simple things. We created SOPs for like, I don't know, like minutia, which got in the way of people and things that they are already trained on, things that they already do, things where, you know, whether you capitalize a certain word and a certain, like, I'm, I'm trying to like think of something so minute, but like we were bogging them down with SOPs surrounding minutia. And what we've done instead was sort of say, hey, businesses are made up of systems. Let's actually visually map out that system. So our proposal system, beautiful now. We used Google Draw, and then we actually sent it to Design Pickle, and they beautified it for us. And now it looks great. And I'm like, we're proud to have this wonderful PDF. But visually, you can see lead comes in, lead gets replied to, lead gets scheduled introduction call, lead gets campaign audit. Based off what the campaign audit happens, different contingencies. So each of those steps, people are expected to know how to do those steps. And you shouldn't necessarily need an... And different people may do an audit in different ways, basically. You know, to, to just finish this thought about what this like one pager. So I've kind of, this one pager has this entire system mapped out visually. Underneath it will have like SOPs to be aware of, like SOPs to know uh, if you're going to be involved in the system. So what we do is we have a meeting, we map it out, we talk about it. We say, do we understand how to do this particular step? Is it mapped out at a high level? So it's like, what is the... 80-20 for this actual process of creating a campaign audit, of, of auditing a campaign. What is that 80-20? Right. Like what's supposed to come out of it? What are you supposed to end up with? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Pareto principle focusing on the 80-20, like what's the meaty parts for you to know of how to get this done? And we have professionals on the team. And I think one of the big things too is like if you have smart professionals with good training and you have good communication about what's expected in each step, you don't necessarily need to tell them every single micro step, you know, let them be professionals. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I've kind of come to a similar conclusion, although we still do have a lot of process, but a lot of my approach has always just been have process around the way that we deliver the work and schedule the work and manage a client's experience. But the actual work of researching and writing, like I'm not going to tell professional writers how to write, like they're professionals and we hired the, the most talented people we could find anyway. So, but in terms of the deliverables and keeping things, um, and also like, you know, getting into like templates that we send in terms of like a report template or like the welcome email template, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It helps to have the process, but yeah, yeah. minutia is the issue. I think where it actually becomes an impediment to getting good work done. Totally. And so where's your role in uh, search scientists today? Like how much are you responsible for? I am currently the salesperson. Uh, that's the last piece of my active roles. So I, I guess I'll say, you know, we all, like I said, we all wear several hats and that's my last big one. Yeah. Same here. Mm -hmm. So I'm hiring. <laughs> Excuse me. So I'm actually hiring for a salesperson uh, as we speak. We're, we hope to have a job posting out, uh, 
So depending on when this goes live, we probably already have one. So we're, we're hoping to hire within the early parts of September. And I think my role is really, I heard this put beautifully by my business coach. He told me this anecdote about Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive, uh, who Johnny Ive's the designer at Apple. And he said, you know, Steve Jobs didn't really design like the MacBook Johnny Ive did. But what Steve Jobs did, it was he came and he helped Johnny Ive produce a better product. He acted as an editor. So I've really been using that to sort of guide a lot of what I do. You know, I'm the editor now. You know, if our client success specialist comes up with a plan on how to do that, you know, that monthly wow, you know, that the monthly surprise, like, hey, I just want you to know we have another person in your account. So if we have that person coming up with that process, it's my responsibility to make sure that process is as good as it possibly can be to get him on board with excellence. And that, again, it's like another another skill set that I had to learn if, if we're going to branch out to different areas, if we're going to build software as well. You know, I can't be actively managing every single piece of the machine. There needs to be really great people on the team with really good training that have really high standards. Otherwise, you know, AdBadger wouldn't, wouldn't have the time. So the last thing that I do actively, uh, aside from the leadership editing, is salesman. Uh, so eventually, that is the last thing that you know, I'm hoping by October, we have a very talented salesperson on the team. Nice. And you know, that, that is such a tough final, tra- maybe not final, but like, f- as you're more advanced, a few years in, training yourself to let go of, of certain higher level responsibilities, like sales, but also that editing role, right? Like yesterday, I had a call with my team manager, we decided that she will become the checkpoint. Like people are not really going to escalate stuff to me anymore, like starting now. And I'm just trusting her that she'll basically make the majority of the decisions and the majority of the judgment calls. And when she needs to pull me in, it'll be her call to do that or not, which I'm a little bit scared today because my inbox is like empty. I'm like, what's what's happening right now? You know, but like, you know, it's it's a good step to make. But I think that's a good transition into going from productized service to building a software product. So like what came first? Was it the idea like I want to build a software product or was the idea for AdBadger came along and it's like, oh, maybe we should build this as a software. Like, does that question make sense? I guess part of what I'm asking is like, why not just stick with search scientists? Why get into a new product at all? So uh, I think I'll begin by saying this is very much in my domain of expertise. I've been doing paid traffic full time for years, you know, that 10,000 hour rule, we've got it. And to be able to look and say, okay, we have this wealth of information on paid traffic. Is there anything that we can actually do that's actually more impactful inside the world of paid traffic? And that was software, but it didn't start that way. It legitimately started by saying, hey, we use these tools for AdWords and we use these tools for Facebook ads, but the tools for Amazon PPC don't necessarily seem to do what we want them to. Like it doesn't mirror what we believe a good optimization process is. So we've been doing this manually, you know, manually in the sense of do negative keyword research once every two weeks, do bit optimization once every two weeks, refine campaign structure once a month, you know, do all these different things. It seemed like there were no tools out there to help us do that more effective and efficiently. And that started the conversation. Uh, I was reaching out to some friends that I knew that actually had uh, Amazon software themselves and you know, started the conversation. Hey, what do you think about this? Is this a, a viable idea? Lo and behold, here we are, you know, 
eight months later, the development process is longer than expected. So I had my own expectations going into it. And, you know, to touch on some of the things that you asked about, I think a lot of service providers romanticize. I know that I do. Uh, they romanticize, oh boy, wouldn't it be nice just to have a product? Uh, shouldn't I just have an e-commerce store? I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, uh, oh, hey, Mike, you work with so many e-commerce stores. Why don't you just start an e-commerce store? Like, you know, you know so much more about marketing than these people. You'd be able to, you, and, and I don't, so I think there's this overall fantasy that like services are very, very difficult and products are much, much easier. And, you know, maybe there's some truth to that. The grass is always greener, right? The grass, exactly. So I've discovered through the development process that it's not an absolute cakewalk. You know, we realized that very soon that there's so many, the Amazon API is frustrating. So you'll be asking your developers, hey, can we test this? And it's like, oh, hold on. We need to go through database management for four days. And it's like, oh, man, like... <laughs> So everything's longer than expected. Totally. It's a slow, somewhat painful process. And I've gone through it myself. And I definitely know, you know, you make all these projections like, oh, we can build that MVP in two, three months. And all of a sudden you're six, eight months into it. And here we are. That's it. <laughs> you know, I do want to dig into the development process and how you've approached that. But before we do that, I guess... Can you tell me just a bit more about how you validated it? So obviously you guys are working in it every day and you know, you're frustrated with the lack of tools for managing Amazon ads. So you guys certainly experienced the pain and you could see how a company like Search Scientist would use this. That's great to build your own software, but did you need to prove to yourself or validate that other customers are out there ready and willing to pay for this thing before you invested in it or how did that work? Uh, one of my favorite things to think about when it comes to software, and, and this didn't apply directly to how I started software, but there's this kind of concept, I believe he talks about it in The Lean Startup, which is a great book. He calls it the Wizard of Oz effect or the Wizard of Oz test, where basically, you know, the thing about the Wizard of Oz was that on the outside, it looked like this big, powerful whiz, you know, thing, but it was really just some guy behind a curtain. So to be able to basically have that. And I, I kind of do have that with search scientists, which is basically asking, will people pay for Amazon ad management? Will people pay for unloading that task to something, whether it be a person or a piece of software, are people willing to pay for it? So, and I knew the market intimately. I knew a lot of the concerns of the customers. So I had a lot of domain expertise inside of it, but in terms of, did I run a landing page test you know, did I run Facebook ads to a landing page that said, hey, this piece of software is coming. It's going to do X, Y, Z, opt in to find out I haven't uh, just because I did feel like it was already validated from years of doing it manually with customers. Right. Like technically people have been hiring you to do the job that Ad Badger essentially does too. So exactly. Mm -hmm. Got it. Very cool. So how did you or how are you funding the launch of Ad Badger? Is it purely out of profits from search scientists? So I've, I've learned something very cool in 2017 that it's, it's business is really fun with great partners. So I actually do have partners at AdBadger. And what's cool about it is that we've all either through sweat equity or cash in the bank, we've all sort of, and not necessarily like we, I needed it, you know, we could have fueled it with search scientists, you know, we could have, but the reason I chose not to was just to get smart people on the team, people with software experience, you know, be an advisor, sit on our, you know, quote unquote board, provide your experience. 
and let's do this. You know, the developer also has ownership in it too. And it's, it's a, has created this environment where there's multiple people that care at a super duper high level. And it's been so powerful. So it, to me, seeing the direction that I want to go, it was important for me to have other people with ownership to be invested at such a high level with Ad Badger. And it's been game changing. It, it set the tone in better than I could have imagined. So our, our first developer is an owner and he's got this owner mentality and the second developer guess what he's absolutely incredible and he also takes great ownership and he and all the, it's created a, such a fantastic culture just accelerating our progress that's really interesting i want to dig into that a bit because for my current product ops calendar i went the other way i'm just hiring and it's been really really tough and slower than i would like not just because development is slow but also for cash flow issues right like had a, some ups and downs earlier in the year with audience ops and that I had to slow down development because I'm paying for it. So that's really interesting. Tell me about that. Like who make up the partner, like the ownership partners in Ad Badger? Are the developers fully equity or is it like a mix of a salary and, and equity? Like how did that work out? Yeah. Uh, so I'll answer that question about you know the, the partnerships that were formed. And I'll also get into the rationale for that. Um, one of my business coaches mentioned you know, hey, whenever you have a new wing of the business, you better be sure that that wing can fly on its own in the sense of it needs to be able to stand on its own two feet. So it's actually, it would actually be bad business if one had to suffer for the other one to live, if that makes sense. And it kind of took me back like, okay, that, that's pretty interesting. So we want the software to be able to stand on its own two feet. And that's why we kind of like set a deadline. We said, hey, we'll put up this much up front. And then after that, like this baby needs to make its own way. And I thought that was interesting. It sort of raised the stakes, so to speak, which I, I liked. So I, I liked that. But in terms of the people involved, uh, these are people, two people have previous software experience, which I thought was incredibly valuable, me as a non-technical person, to get people to be able to, you know, Hey, what's good SaaS pricing strategy in your experience to be able to get that invested person who, that you can bounce ideas around with has been invaluable. So those two people are the developers on the product? Uh, no, we have two advisors and then we have one developer who has uh, equity. Okay, cool. And um, where did you meet all those people, the advisors and the developers? Uh, you know, I attended this talk years ago and I think, you know, I've, I've always, software is like, you know, like I said, people romanticize it. So I attended this talk and the title of the talk was, you know, how I started a software company as a not technical person. And I was like, oh, this is incredible. This is going to be a non-developer talking about how they found their developer and they launched a successful software. And the person goes on and on and on and on and on. And then I was like, okay, great. When it, like, what's the framework? How do I find a developer? And long story short, they started dating. So they met each other while dating. And I was like, okay, like, that's not a framework. And it kind of like left me feeling like, uh, I thought I was going to get like the system. And now it may hopefully in a couple of years, if we have a successful piece of software, maybe I one day could be giving a talk, how I gave, how I found my developer. And I'll probably give the same flat answer that I heard. You got to get lucky. Basically <laughs> you have to. Get, so this is the most Austin story. Uh, I was standing in a dog park. My dog's running around. There's somebody next to me. And I was like, oh, you have a dog? Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, you know, what is it that you do? We just started talking. And we'd go to this dog park every, you know, couple of days. 
And I would ask him like, hey, have you ever heard of this software language? And it's a language that I knew needed to be patched to the Amazon API. And I just asked him, like, hey, you've had an experience with this? And he's like, oh no, you know, I don't really have experience with that framework. Like the next time I saw him, he's like, hey, that framework, I looked it up, it's awesome. It's gonna help me so much. And I was like, well, okay, this guy's, this guy's motivated. He really, he's a, he's a, this is like, what an incredible characteristic. And that is how I found my developer in a dog park here in Austin. <laughs> That is an awesome story. And that is, uh, I've never heard anyone, I, everyone talks about, oh yeah, I, I went on Upwork and I had this strategy to test out developers or they get referrals from folks. But uh, meeting your lead developer at a dog park in Austin, I can't say I have heard that one before. It's very interesting. <laughs> but that's awesome, you know? <laughs> I, I feel like it's very Austin. Yeah. Was that meeting, is that partly what led you to decide to build this company, AdBadger, in-house with an office, whereas Search Scientist was remote, or did that decision come earlier? Yeah, I, I think it was part of the decision. You know what? It's almost like it's okay to almost like optimize for experience, too. Uh, it, there's something really cool sitting in the same room, because uh, I mean, as you surely know, like development is a hard road to walk. I mean, things break, you know, you'll, the developer will want to work on one simple thing. Like, uh, you know, I'm oversimplifying, but Hey, can we change the color of that button? And then like 20 hours later, it's like still working on it. I discovered like 12 other issues that I'm addressing. And like, that's like very, very normal. So to have someone in house, to be able to communicate that with, especially because I'm not technical myself, I'm learning. Uh, but to be able to have that person communicate with you is great. And I, and you know, optimizing for experience gets back to, it's fun to share experiences outside of work with people that you work with. So, you know, we have a, a few members of the team playing a volleyball league on Mondays. This is like fun. This is, so we're optimizing for experience and that's been really cool. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously audience ops is fully remote and that really lends itself well to being remote. Everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. We've got our systems and processes, really very few meeting, like internal meetings at Audience Ops. But since I've been working on the software product, I've got three different developers all in Eastern Europe. So in that sense, we're all remote too. And I still love the idea of working remote for many reasons. I mean, I, I just like the flexibility myself to be able to kind of come and go and work whenever I want and wherever I want. Obviously, the talent pool is worldwide rather than my area code and the rates here compared to, you know, somewhere like Eastern Europe. But I mean, and there is certainly a big but like what you were just discussing. I've talked about it on other podcasts how early on and my developers and I were new to each other. We had a getting to know you period where it was like, okay, they went with one requirement that I had laid out and then they kind of went into a hole for two or three days, like hitting a wall and then working through it. Whereas if we had just communicated or maybe if we were in the same room together, I could have been like, oh, I didn't realize how complex that was. We could just tweak the requirement and save two days of development. I have this thing in business and online marketing, all these things. And I was, so if someone says, hey, we want to start doing Facebook ads and we want to start a landing page, like never done it before. And they're kind of like, well, what do you think? And my answer is like, well, you know, it's never going to be as bad as it is right now. Like, this is your first time. It's going to be really bad. So one of the big things I've learned, like, I'll never be as bad at communicating the app itself to other people as I am right now. And I feel like being in the same room has uh, helped in many ways because 
one of the big things that I wasn't expecting, you know, in my head, like I can picture the app in my head. I can picture what it's going to look like. I can picture what people will do. And then it actually, you know, the, the, I don't actually have the picture in my head, you know, mapping out every single step of what the tool is. How does you, what's the first thing a user sees? How do they know it? Like this exists in your head. Of course, you know how it works. How will a user know how it works? So writing meticulously everything that each screen of the app will do, handing it over and then seeing what they produce, which is this beautiful thing based off what I said. And then me scratching my head, you know, uh, actually, I don't think I described that properly. Like, I don't think I was clear there. I'm, I'm sorry. And, and remapping it. And now that you see it, it is your user experience. Yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's been a really interesting part of the development process of, of actually going from idea in your head because you're so intimate with this and then actually mapping it out in a way that someone could read and understand, you know, drawing out screens on a piece of paper. So each tool actually has like 10 pieces of paper somewhere where actually like drew it out, like person clicks on this, next page, redraw it. Then this happens and then redraw. They have options. It's been really interesting seeing how to take something from idea to code and then visually put it on the screen. Yeah, it really is pretty exciting once you get like a working version that you could actually start to use. And it's so exciting. So, you know, as we start to kind of wrap up here, so we're recording this here in end of August 2017. This will probably come out in a few months from now. What's coming up next? Like, I'm actually kind of curious, like, what are the next steps in terms of launching it, the initial marketing push for Ad Badger? How are you going to get the first customers? Is that kind of like what's next on the roadmap for you? Or? Yeah, exactly. So now that we are starting to see that the app works and that the not just works in terms of free of bugs, but actually makes campaigns better. Now that we're actually starting to see that it can actually improve campaigns, that that will sort of be our battle cry. And, you know, we'll do a lot of different marketing strategies, nothing that we haven't invented ourselves, you know, content marketing, Facebook ads and paid traffic, all of those good things. So, yeah, that should be the next step. And, you know, we want to be cautious, getting our first paying customers, listening to early feedback, getting our next round of paid customers. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what you can do with software and you know, open up the doors to your first 100 customers and, you know, take their feedback and improve it so that when you open up to the next 500 customers, you know, you have a much better product. Yeah. Lean Startup was a big, I borrowed a lot from Lean Startup. You know, what can we do to get information on our customers to then fuel the next round of development? Nice. Well, that's at adbadger.com. That's where you can check out the new tool. Of course, also check out searchscientists.com. That's your agency. Where else can people uh, connect with you? Uh, Twitter's good, at searchsci-mike, S-E-A-R-C-H-S-C-I-Mike. And I have a personal blog at thesynapticcleft.com. All right. Well, we will definitely get all those uh, linked up in the show notes. Uh, Michael, this this is great. Yeah, thanks for doing it. Thanks so much, Brian. Okay, that wraps it up. Did you enjoy this one? I mean, it couldn't have been that bad. You made it this far into the episode, right? So head over to iTunes, leave a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And if you're not on my newsletter yet, there's a lot more happening over there. And so you'll definitely want to get up to speed. You can join over on my site, castjam.com. Have a great week. Have a great week.